This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Urinary incontinence, it's a major quality of life issue. Patients rarely mention it to us and assume it's a normal change of aging. Many with the condition are reluctant to go out in public and those who do usually know the location of all the restrooms nearby. With the proper evaluation and treatment, essentially all of these patients can be helped and in many cases cured. Urgency incontinence is one of the most common forms of urinary incontinence and we'll be discussing this condition with Dr. Brian Linder, a urologist at the Mayo Clinic. Welcome, Brian. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here today. Well, Brian, let's start by talking about the definition of urgency incontinence, because there are several different types. Let's make sure our audience knows which one we're talking about. So how would you describe urgency incontinence? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of incontinence, there are a couple of main types that we're trying to differentiate. So urgency incontinence being one, and essentially the definition of it becomes a little bit more technical maybe than it has to be, but it's a sudden and compelling urge to urinate that a patient can't defer. And essentially, that just means they have an urge to go to the bathroom, they may leak on the way to the bathroom. The other type, for instance, stress incontinence is leaking with something that's going to increase abdominal pressure. So stress incontinence would be if they're coughing, laughing, sneezing, lifting, and they're losing urine at that time. Okay. And we're going to devote another podcast to talking about stress incontinence. So in terms of urgency incontinence, is this primarily a problem for females? Urgency incontinence is part of a larger symptom complex that we call overactive bladder. So that would be frequency, urgency, with or without leaking, as well as nocturia. So overactive bladder is something that's very common in both men and women. Even about 30 to 40% of adults may experience it. Actual urgency-related leaking is more common in women. But both men and women have overactive bladder. It's Correct. not a female issue. Correct. And that's Many of the treatments and diagnosis and things that we talk about will be similar to both. Obviously, there are a few that are specific to men or women. Most of my practice is treating women, so that's a lot of the reference that I'll use for some of the discussion. Mm -hmm. Is it known what causes the bladder to be overactive? Why does it contract before it's full? So it's a good question. There isn't a clear answer. A lot of patients, it's idiopathic. And in fact, part of making the diagnosis is ruling out things that we know could cause those symptoms. So in addition to overactive bladder, are there other things that could cause urgency incontinence? There are a handful of different diagnoses that we're trying to rule out before treating someone for idiopathic overactive bladder. One category of that would be something that irritates the bladder lining. So for instance, if someone had an active infection or if they had a bladder tumor, anything that can cause that bladder lining to be more irritable. Other comorbidities can cause it too. So for instance, those with a neurologic diagnosis, if they've had a prior stroke or Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, for instance, or poorly controlled diabetes, all of those can change bladder function. And the patient may present with overactivity, urgency, frequency, or urge-related leaking. Now, I remember in the distant past, I had not heard the term overactive bladder, but I did hear the words detrusor, overactivity, hyperactivity. Is that the same thing? Are they talking about the same condition? They are all talking about the same thing. So detrusor instability, detrusor overactivity, hyperreflexia, everyone has different 
terms. There are standardized terms from kind of international consensus statements, but overall those are all referring to the same thing. Essentially the bladder is squeezing without permission, leading to the loss of urine. The actual technical definitions come down to if they had a neurologic diagnosis related to it, if it was on a urodynamic study, kind of nuances like that. Okay. So as a primary care provider, these patients commonly come into our office. In my experience, they don't usually bring up the problem. So we ask about it. What are the important questions that we should ask them? So it's a great question. You know, the first part is understanding the leakage, the pattern, the severity, and how much it's bothering them. So kind of like we were talking about before, the different types of incontinence, whether this is an urge-related leak, this is stress incontinence, or perhaps it's mixed incontinence and they have some of both. So the pattern, what brings it on, how much they're leaking, any treatments that they've tried before is another common one. Mm -hmm. And then similar, just like you were saying, not many patients may be bringing it forward. I also assess for other pelvic floor disorders at the same time. So for instance, do they have a vaginal bulge and concern about prolapse? Do they have dyspareunia or pain with sexual activity, vaginal dryness? other concerns like accidental bowel leakage that they may not bring forward on their own. I guess in my experience, I'd say the history is probably the most important part of the evaluation. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. For overactive bladder, most of this is a clinical diagnosis. The actual testing is very limited. Mm -hmm. What's the usefulness of avoiding diary? So avoiding diaries have, you know, I joke sometimes with uh, trainees and patients, they're diagnostic but they can also be therapeutic. So they're nice in that they can set a nice baseline. Sometimes when patients are put on the spot, you know, how often are you emptying the bladder? How often are you leaking? What's making you leak? How much do you drink in a day? It's hard to recall. And so this is a nice objective way that you can sit down and kind of see the pattern that that patient is experiencing. Mm -hmm. The other is you can refer back to it after some treatments to see if you're making progress. And what I mean by the therapeutic part is I've had a few patients come in after doing their bladder diary and realize that there's behavioral modifications that they could make that are adding to their symptoms, whether it's the, you know a total volume of fluid that's excessive or a lot of bladder irritants, things like that. I think I found one of the most beneficial reasons for asking a patient to fill out avoiding diary is to find out how much fluid and what they're drinking. And um, it's not surprising that they drink eight to 10 cups of coffee per day and they're having frequency and urgency. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so behavioral modifications are kind of the first line treatments and we'll go through some of those, but the total volume of fluid and consumption of bladder irritants is a common one that's easily addressable in some cases. Mm -hmm. What other substances are irritating to the bladder in addition to caffeine? So common ones are things like carbonation, artificial sweeteners, spicy food, alcohol. Okay. So we've taken a good history. We think the patient has urgency and continence. What type or how much of a physical exam is recommended for the evaluation of these patients? Again, kind of using um, female patients as the lens here, I would be doing an exam, an abdominal exam, looking for lower extremity edema and a pelvic exam. And a pelvic exam, I think, has a big role in some of the non-invasive treatments of overactive bladder. So for instance, in that you're looking for the degree of estrogenization of the vaginal epithelium, looking for signs of atrophy, thinning blanched tissue with loss of rugae, looking for any periurethral lesions, stress incontinence, prolapse, 
and then assessing the pelvic floor muscles. And really there's two versions of that. One is palpating, so a single digit pressing on the levators or obturators asking if it's tender. And then the other is pelvic floor muscle recruitment. And those get treated differently, but a lot of patients may have underlying pelvic floor muscle tenderness, where for instance, working on exercises to squeeze those muscles is kind of counterproductive. Okay. And then finally, how about laboratory tests? Is there anything we should be ordering to look for in there? So the original workup of overactive bladder is relatively limited. Essentially, a urinalysis is the only thing that routinely is obtained in addition to the history and physical. Some of the other tests, for instance, a urodynamic study, cystoscopy, kidney or bladder imaging aren't needed in an uncomplicated patient. When are urodynamics indicated? So doing a urodynamic study, for instance, a multi-channel study looking at bladder pressures is only useful in patients that have complicated presentations or have failed treatment modalities. So now we're refractory and we're looking at other therapies. Earlier in the evaluation, some patients will get a post-void residual, which can be helpful. For instance, if there's obstructive symptoms or the patient thinks they're not emptying their bladder adequately. Now you've mentioned mixed incontinence earlier. Describe what that is. So mixed incontinence would be the patient where we were talking about, you're asking about descriptors of urge incontinence and their answer is, yes, I have that. And then you're talking about stress incontinence. Yes, I have that. So essentially they have a combination. And in that instance, probably the next most important question, is there one that is predominant? So we tend to classify it, is it urge predominant mixed incontinence? Is it stress predominant mixed incontinence? And that'll help guide your treatment, whether you're aiming this at the urge component first or the stress component first. And those are the patients that give to me the most confusing histories because they have features of both. I guess in most cases, when I've ordered or asked for your dynamics, that would be the patient that commonly would get it because the history is very confusing. Yeah, absolutely. So one indication for getting a urodynamic study is essentially an unclear clinical picture. So if it's helping you answer a question of what's the underlying issue that I treat, Sometimes you can get it from asking the history different ways in terms of the patterns of leaking, but truly there are some where it's hard to discern between the two. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when I get the urodynamics back, the findings don't always correlate with the clinical symptoms and it's, that's makes it even more confusing. So that's a good point. And that's why, you know, I was referencing, sometimes it takes the history a little bit of a different path to get to the answer. In that instance, I wouldn't treat the urodynamic study. I would go with what the patient's telling you in terms of what to find, because the urodynamic study may not reproduce their symptoms necessarily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the patients come back saying, well, you know, I was in a weird voiding position and they had all these instruments hooked up to me and it was, uh, it was anything other than ordinary uh, urination. So I think that contributes to the problem. So We've established a diagnosis. We think the patient has urgency incontinence. What do you do first for treatments? Are there some non-pharmacologic things we can try before we prescribe medications? Absolutely. So typically the first line of treatment is education about bladder function. And some of that comes into voiding habits and fluid intake and bladder irritants. There's other versions of behavioral therapies, for instance, pelvic floor exercises or physical therapy. And that gets back to what we were talking about on the physical exam. So if someone has tenderness in those muscles, essentially that's physical therapy to relax the muscles as opposed to, for instance, Kegel type exercises. Or for those with pelvic floor muscle weakness, pelvic floor physical therapy and strengthening those muscles 
through exercises. And patients would do that in kind of urge suppression techniques. So when they get an urge, if they squeeze release those muscles in succession, they can get a feedback to the bladder, giving them time to get to the bathroom. Do you find patients have difficulty understanding which are the pelvic floor muscles and how they contract those? Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of why, you know, I reference it as physical therapy is them meeting with a trained provider to be able to isolate those muscles when they need to and relax them when they need to. Just telling a woman, do Kegel exercises, many won't be able to isolate the right muscles. And you would see that on exam. And actually, when they did some studies of, for instance, urethral pressures, when they asked someone to squeeze the pelvic floor muscles, it was about half of women that were squeezing those muscles. About a quarter were actually bearing down. I have also found that patients are very grateful when they learn about the urge suppression technique because it is very effective. And what I do is ask them about their triggers. What typically will cause you to uh, have the urge to urinate? Now, whether it's, you know, driving into their garage, putting their key in the lock, hearing water run, but usually patients have something they've identified as triggers, which seem to often bring on the symptoms. Yeah, that's a very common pattern. So everyone has their own kind of precipitating factors, mm -hmm. and then they can adjust what they need to based on, you know, that experience. Is time voiding of any benefit? So time voiding is usually something that I'm talking with patients about when I'm either getting from the history or from the bladder diary that they're going a long time in between voids. So normally I would talk with patients about every two hours or so to empty by the clock, but that becomes more useful when someone says, well, I have urgency and urge-related leaking, and you see that it's six hours between their voids and it's a high volume. And then I talk with patients, you know, essentially the bladder is a water balloon. The more full it is, the more you're going to get an urge to go, and that may precipitate leaking. So a lot of patients seem to think that if I have a problem with urgency and incontinence, the treatment should be to restrict my fluids. Is that a good idea? So it's certainly a common strategy and intuitively it makes sense. If the problem is the bladder fills, I won't fill the bladder and then I won't have the urge related leaking. It's not something that I would typically instruct people to do. Normally I'm telling people about 60 ounces, unless they have some other medical condition, you know, kidney stones or heart disease where we have to adjust more or less. Rather, I would be treating the overactive bladder symptoms as opposed to fluid restriction, which may have its own consequences. So in addition to the non-pharmacologic things, there are some drugs available, which have been quite effective. Can you review some of those? Certainly. So medicines come in kind of two forms in my mind. There's oral medicines. And then the other would be, for instance, something like topical vaginal estrogen. So that's just one kind of caveat from the physical exam. So if someone's perimenopausal, postmenopausal, and they have changes on the exam, for instance, atrophic vaginal tissues, they may have genitourinary syndrome of menopause where they're having frequency, urgency, dysuria, recurrent urinary tract infections, and topical estrogen in the right candidate can be a good treatment. The other mainstay and probably the more common is oral medicines. And those essentially come as anticholinergic medications or beta-3 agonists. And how do they work? What's the mechanism of their action? So anticholinergic medications work on the parasympathetic side of things. So they're antagonists to block the cholinergic receptors and make the bladder relax. And on the other side, beta-3 agonists are on the sympathetic side. So they're stimulating beta receptors, which makes the bladder relax as well. 
and those are relatively new, the beta-3 agonists, right? The, uh, the anticholinergics, they've been around for many, many years, and I know a lot of patients don't like those because it typically causes the anticholinergic side effects, you know, dry mouth and constipation. Uh, that should not be a problem with the beta agonist, correct? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So anticholinergic medications have been around for a long time, and unfortunately, they do have some of those prototypical side effects in terms of dry mouth, constipation, changes in vision. There's even some evidence that with certain medications, long-term use may have cognitive changes. So that's an ongoing area of concern and discussion about using them. There are some that have maybe less of that side effect profile. Beta-3 agonists are newer. By newer, off the top of my head, I'm not remembering, but I bet it's eight or 10 years ago. The first one was FDA approved. Mm -hmm. They tend to cause less of that group of side effects. So they're not anticholinergic. Constipation is still something we run into. Headaches is another one. And then in patients with uncontrolled high blood pressure, typically this wouldn't be used because it can change blood pressure. Okay. So we have a patient who's not responded to non-pharmacologic therapy. We've tried the oral medications, maybe topical estrogen. They're still having problems. What's available to them now? So that's a great question, and I think it's important that providers know there are treatments beyond oral medicines. Essentially, there are three types of treatments. One would be onobotulinum toxin A injection into the bladder, which is a cystoscopic procedure. A second one is a peripheral nerve modulation. That's called tibial nerve stimulation. And the third is a central treatment where we're putting in essentially a bladder pacemaker, and that's called sacral neuromodulation. So Onobotulinum toxin A injection is a cystoscopic procedure that we're doing in the office. About two-thirds of women have a significant improvement. Even about 30% are dry. It's usually well-tolerated, and we can do it in the office, though sometimes we'll do it in the operating room. The biggest drawback is there's a small risk of urinary retention. So until the medicine starts to wear off, patients would have to self-catheterize, and that's a small percentage of women. The two forms of neuromodulation both have good efficacy. They're different in terms of invasiveness. So tibial nerve stimulation, for instance, is an office procedure. It's done once a week for 12 weeks, and it involves one acupuncture needle that sends a signal up the leg to the pelvic nerves. By comparison, sacral neuromodulation involves going to the operating room and putting in a wire through the S3 foramen in order to modulate the nerves going to the bladder. Patients then try out the therapy at home for a week or two to see their response. And if they're doing well, we'll go back to an operating room to put in a battery that can last either five to seven years in a non-rechargeable version or up to 15 years with a rechargeable version. So that type of therapy is a little bit more invasive, but has good efficacy. Brian, could you say anything about capsaicin infusion? Are those still done? No, capsaicin infusion essentially used to be done as a testing for painful bladder syndrome or interstitial cystitis. And so that's not recommended now because it's painful for patients. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Brian, let's summarize our discussion. Can you give us two or three key points regarding urgency and continence? So I think there are a couple of key takeaways. The first is getting a good history. So you're putting the patient on the right treatment path. And that way you're defining the symptoms that they're having and what are the potential options. The other is that there are a lot of behavioral or non-invasive therapies, whether that's oral medicines, physical therapy, estrogen. And then another takeaway I think that it's important to recognize is that there are treatments beyond those. So if a patient is still having refractory symptoms, 
it isn't they've tried oral medicines and that's the end of the line. There are other treatments such as bladder injections with onobotulinum toxin A, tibial nerve stimulation, or sacral neuromodulation that can help their symptoms. Well, we've been discussing urgency urinary incontinence with Dr. Brian Linder, a urologist at the Mayo Clinic. Brian, thanks so much for sharing this information with us. It was uh, very interesting. Yeah, thanks for having me. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week. Music